heroic communities. It is ironic that the greatest boon for anarchy in the public eye of the U.S. during the past few decades has been the tactic of the Black Bloc. The same folks, punks, travelers, greens, and other mangy misfits that the Pollyannas of anarchism would claim are weakening the movement have inspired a huge upsurge in anarchist activity in the United States. The Black Blocs of Seattle, Washington, Quebec City, and elsewhere have inspired people. They were courageous, and their solidarity was heroic. Their actions resonated not only with young people, but also with many other segments of society, from the disempowered black community in Seattle to the unemployed Quebec youth. While we are constantly told that mainstream Americans are fearful for, of the use of violence, is it disaffected and excluded understand the urge to destroy property, even when it is a tractor driven through a McDonald's? There have been countless heroic communities from which we can draw inspiration, as we are working to create more of them across the globe today. We offer these examples not to glorify the past, but to simply show that it has been done before and will be done again. These heroic communities are fairly unique, but they are connected by their practical effects and dedication. These heroic communities each unleashed the imagination of, the of their respective eras and so inspired unlikely segments of their societies to join them in struggle. While it's currently fashionable to knock traveling kids, these days modern hobos are the socio-political descendants of the folks that brought the United States close to full-scale popular revolution, the industrial workers of the world. These militants hop-top chains from coast to coast, organizing every possible ethnic group and industry into autonomous, interconnected networks of mutual aid. Even though they touted the creation of, quote, one big union, unquote, a concept that relied on using sheer mass to beat the capitalists, it was their individual and collective acts of solidarity which inspired their contemporaries and still inspire us today. When every woman is an organizer, decentralization and mutual aid are quick to follow. The industrialized workers of the world, or the Wobblies, didn't wring their hands about violence. They stood their ground against the National Guard, Pinkertons, the American Legion, mobs, and even the gallows. Now that much of the industrial infrastructure has fled overseas to be replaced by temporary service jobs, perhaps a post-industrial ex-workers of all worlds is needed. The grandest of all guerrilla warfare was not carried out in Cuba, China, or even dear old Russia, but in the unlikely country of Champagne and Goose Liver Pate. Anarchists have overlooked the French, resist French resistance in favor of the heroics of Spain and various third-world guerrillas. The French Maquis, along with anti-fascist resistance, nearly every country under the Nazi yoke, was able to inspire thousands of housewives, milkmen, teachers, intellectuals, artists, and nearly every segment of society. What is fascinating about the heroic community of the French Maquis is how mundane lives of the heroes were compared to their secretive ex exploits. The Allied intelligence officially rejected the Maquis as an, quote, ineffectual disorganized group of political hooligans, unquote, while the collaborators in Vichy were hard-pressed to explain to the Reich how military production and law enforcement had, had been, quote, seriously compromised, unquote, by these, quote, fishmongers and ex-students. These communities of resistance, organized in autonomous units in France and elsewhere, relied on the 
the medium of inspiration to spread their message, since all propaganda channels were under Nazi control. They were able to breathe new life into the tired slogan of propaganda by the deed. For every saboteur in the Maquis, there were dozens of comrades who secured safe housing, food, money, and weapons at considerable risk to themselves and their families. These secret supporters spread the idea of resistance in hushed conversations at cafes and over neighborhood fences. All of this was done under the heel of the most efficient, repressive police force in history, the Gestapo. The Maquis' heroic acts of sabotage, which they called, quote, free acts, stoked the flames of non-compliance among the population, effectively making many ordinary French people a fifth column behind the fascist lines. Every free act created an inspirational contagion, and even the Gestapo reported, quote, It is nearly impossible to keep ordinary peasants from talking about these free acts at bars. It seems to create an atmosphere of resistance in unexpected quarters. <laughs> Today we have short-lived coalitions like the Turtles and Teamsters of Seattle, but nothing compares to the unlikely alliance between runaway slaves swamp-dwelling natives and Mexican peasants, known as a Seminole Nation. It is wrong to consider the Seminole Nation a coalition in the modern sense. Instead, it created a cultural fusion that took linguistic, sociological, and political, as political aspects from all three groups to create a unique community of resistance, whose existence stretched from before the creation of the United States until well after the Civil War. The Seminoles inspired fear among British soldiers, the U.S. federal government, slavers, Texas rangers, hierarchical Native American tribes, and the Mexican military. They were not only successful in frustrating their enemies, but provided a wellspring of hope for those fleeing authoritarian tribes in the horror of slavery. How was this possible in a time before mass media? The answer is simple. The heroic acts of the Seminoles and their unswerving militant resistance made them legends in their own lifetimes. Their reputation motivated oppressed peoples to engage in equally heroic acts, such as running away from their slave masters and traveling hundreds of miles as fugitives to join this new community. What is so fascinating about this unique tribe is that they carried on their resistance far longer than many other tribes in the Americas, and arguably with greater success than even the Plains Indians. They dreamed of a land of their own, and fought to secure it against many foes. These are just a few examples of heroic communities overlooked by anarchists, but there are many more. There are examples to be drawn from French mutineers of the First World War, pirates of both the Caribbean and North Africa, slave revolts of the New World, the English diggers, the fiery sailors of frozen Kronstadt, and the many more whose stories have been stripped from history books. Despite their geographical and historical differences, they share a host of common characteristics, though no group probably contained all of these characteristics. First, they place an emphasis on the overall community, as opposed to the personality of spokesperson. Second, the community is open to outsiders, new ideas, and innovative tactics. Third, the community develops its own Mongol and unique culture of decentralized resistance. Finally, these communities make radical change the heart of their tactics, message, and culture. 
From the Maquis to Seminoles, it is hard to find leaders in these cultures of resistance. Governments do not understand leaderless resistance, and they often ridiculously compare, create false leaders and masterminds. Famously, the U.S. and the Mexican governments tried to portray Wildcat, a brilliant warrior and strategist, as the leader of the Seminoles. He rejected any such status and said, quote, I speak for myself, for I am free. Each of the others also speak for themselves. We are a choir of free voices that will drown out your lies." Unquote. Similarly, the French Maquis refused to send leaders to negotiate with either the Vichy government or the Allies. Frustrated, both governments anointed de Gaulle as the quote, leader, despite the fact that he actually fled, fled France to England. Leaderless resistance was both a tactical and political necessity for these heroic communities and remains for the ones we create today. Heroic communities tend not to erect inflexible boundaries between them and the rest of the world. Instead, they are open to outsiders and outside ideas. They are marked by their flexible nature when compared to the societies that they are in opposition against. Out of this flux of people from various backgrounds with differing ideas of what they want from life, Heroic communities create sustaining and nurturing cultures. These Mongo group, groups possessed an egalitarian openness that created space for new ideas and tactics to develop radically, rapidly. They sought to create a new and free society and were willing to fight effectively for it. They rejected tactical centralization, refusing to line up their forces on a field against numerically superior and better equipped government forces. Instead, they utilize the flexibility and innovation of autonomous affinity groups, cells, crews, and bands working in concert. These communities refuse to water down their ideals or tone down their tactics in order to gain popular support. Their message was meant to intimidate their enemies, not to bolster recruitment. They attracted folks precisely because they were genuine. They were offering real and meaningful change. We can already hear the shouts of the critics. But they all failed! And sadly, these critics are partially right. None of these communities of resistance continue today in a recognizable form. The Seminoles are best known for their casinos, and the Wobblies today are a shadow of their precursors. Yet, during their heyday, these heroic communities created the sorts of relationships and fierce resistance that most of us aspire to today. Instead of placing them in the dustbin of history as interesting failures or worshipping them, we can learn from their methods and mistakes. Courage is contagious. Our challenge is to be confident enough to form heroic communities here and now, because freedom is universal as the world we all inhabit and as different as each of its inhabitants. Propaganda by the need. Propaganda by the deed. Even the angels and dogs have masks. A folk tale. As told to crime think, mercenary Regina de Bray. Quote, and then the tiny mouse saw the tiny bit of cheese, the milk, and the tiny fish. Everything that he wanted was in the tiny kitchen, and he could not get there because the tiny cat would not allow it. And then the tiny mouse said, Enough! And he grabbed the machine gun and shot the tiny cat. The story of the tiny mouse and the tiny cat, the Zapatista's children's story. Be realistic. At its heart, 
Anarchy is helping your friends for no greater end than your friendship. We anarchists call this mutual aid. Although it sounds easy, all the powers that can that be discourage us from helping our friends. As the capitalists would have it, the world is a cold and desolate place where everyone greets each other as potential competitors and enemies because there is simply not enough to go around. Not enough of everything, not enough money, not enough time, not enough food, not enough love, and soon enough, not even enough clean air or clean water. In such a world, who can afford friends? The only way to banish this dysfunctional thinking is to go out into the world and disprove it with your own life. That's exactly what we set out to do. Demand the impossible. Sometimes we don't ever meet our friends. We just hear about them, read about them, listen to their music, and no matter how distant they seem, we feel a bond that miraculously crosses space and time. One day, a neighbor told me that the Zapatistas, an armed indigenous rebellion that stormed into the front page of Global News on the day of the ratification in 1994 of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, would appreciate some computers and other general help. I looked her in straight in the eye and said, I'll be down there as soon as possible. And I meant it. The Zapatistas' revolt has inspired the entire world. And while we had never personally met them, nor been to Chiapas, if they needed something and it was within our ability to get it, we would certainly try. As most Americans realize, Western society is so wasteful that you can daily, daily find perfectly good things thrown away. Many of our friends have taken advantage of this extravagance by dumpster diving. Usually dumpster diving is limited to merely food found in dumpsters, barely enough to feed our hungry bellies and some left over from food not bombs. However, the rich throw computers into a trash like stale bread as soon as the newest model comes out, despite the fact that millions would love to use them. So we decided to dumpster dive some computers and somehow make our way to Chiapas. Nothing could be easier. There were several problems. The first being a severe lack of computers. <laughs> Never ones to let anything, something as dreary as reality curb our enthusiasm, we began to pray to the ever-shifty patron spirits of thieves and hobos to deliver unto us working computers. Soon after we completed our dark rituals, several computers incarnated themselves to answer our prayers. It turned out that a group of activists was willing to donate some old computers they had given by the hit they had been given by a non-profit group. Unfortunately, we were in Boston, recovering from yet another anarchist street protest, and the computers were on the West Coast. Without fear, a merry band of companions rose to the occasion to bring needed supplies and goodwill to Mexico. With little in the way of possessions and, as usual, no money, we hopped trains across the Arctic North, making our way to the West Coast, solely on a large pack of oats which we promptly gave away to an indigenous family we met along the way, who were hitchhiking to Seattle. We picked up the computers from the friendly, hip, West Coast activists and realized, to our dismay, that without an automobile, we had no way to transport them down the street, much less to Chiapas. Again, our lack of planning seemed to doom us. We couldn't hitchhike or train hop with them, and our trusty van was stranded in Boston. Luckily, a small horde of primitivists was passing through on, through on route to Arizona on a tour to promote the destruction of civilization. Although we reasoned computers were surely included under the category of civilization, once we explained our scheme, they offered to lend us a hand. 
Despite the irony of their situation, the band of anarcho-primitivists were more than willing to help us, and in turn the Zapatistas, by strapping the computers to the top of their van, taking them one step closer to their final destination. In search of our long-lost van, we got a ride across California and Arizona, funded purely by or- orgy of gas thievery and scams until other members of our ragged crew managed to get the van, loaded with even more computers picked up on way from some from a shady inside job at a well-known Washington, D.C. corporation, to our secret base in the suburbs of Atlanta, and ready it up for the trip. The van, brimming with anarchists, began its slow journey, breaking an axle and having nearly flipped due to the weight of the computers. One of the computers was bartered along the way to a car mechanic for a used axle in Mississippi, and we continued our odyssey. We made it to Arizona, picked up the computers from the green anarchists, and hit another snag. The border itself seemed insurmountable. After all, you're not supposed to truck a van load of computers into a foreign country and not expect to have questions asked by the border guards. Luckily, we were aided by a group of Quakers, in collaboration with the Union of Mexican Anarcho-Syndicalist Sweatshop Workers, who maneuvered the goods across the border without a problem. After giving several of the computers to the Union, we drove to Chiapas triumphant. The truly remarkable feat was that we did this with few resources besides our maniacal unemployment and the legend of the Zapatistas. It only happened because of the help of young, baklava-clad, anarcho-primitives, a disgruntled D.C. middle manager, a Mississippi mechanic, Mexican sweatshop workers, and elderly pacifists, a network of friends capable of doing the impossible for an armed indigenous rebellion. Through mutual aid, we helped create a network of friends that cross an entire continent. The only question is, what's next? Quote, After the journey, I was sitting with notepad in hand, writing down the license plates of the police cars and military trucks as they drove by in the Zapatista village. Above me was what, at one time, a church, and was now something completely different. For while the church was full of pictures of angels, these brown-skinned angels had bandanas hiding their faces, and where there would have normally been a picture of Christ, or at least the, quote, Virgin Mary, there was a Virgin of Guadalupe, with a mask, cradling a gun like a child. I asked Manuel, a stocky Zapatista local whose job was to let only friends through the gate, and who had the goodwill to put up with my broken Spanish, why the angels had masks. He said, even the angels have masks. They're Zapatista angels. Like all autonomous communities I visited, there was a pack of mongry, mangy dogs living on the edge of town, running about, self-evidently up to no good. Ah, I began jokingly, whose dogs are those? Manuel responded, those are Pedros Autonomos. Even the dogs are Zapatistas. I asked him why they weren't wearing masks. We all have masks. The angels, the The dogs, the corn, the Virgin Mary, the children, the elders, we all have masks. Sometimes we are not wearing them, but the masks are always there. Infrastructure for the hell of it. Over the last decade, there has been a lot of passionate discussion amongst anarchists about the need for infrastructure in North America. Despite this profound desire for an explicitly anarchist infrastructure, there has been little collective activity or even clear visions about what this could look like. Infrastructure seems just too damn big to think about, much less accomplish. 
When we think about infrastructure, things like transportation, communication networks, power, sewage, and housing come to mind. Or else we imagine giant public works projects that cost millions of dollars, require the labor of thousands of people, and often take decades or more to realize. No wonder most of us are paralyzed by the idea of infrastructure. Worse, this paralysis leads to a great deal of skepticism about the possibility of an anarchist society's chance of thriving. However, there is a different kind of infrastructure, and it is small, free, and festive. An infrastructure very, very alien to the massive dinosaur infrastructure around us today. What we are working for is a counterstructure that will allow us to live not only outside of, but against the current infrastructure. Counterstructure happens without even planning for it. It is insidious and creeps into our projects on kitten paws. Counterstructure organically grows in reaction to the immediate physical environment and current events, which is why Food Not Bombs is so popular in America, but not in a country like Scotland, where there are many soup kitchens and government aid programs. Food Not Bombs, in particular, has a folk anarchist quality because it is more than just infrastructure to fulfill immediate needs and empowers all who take part in its genuine relationships based on mutual aim. The homeless, or home-free, depending on her perspective, woman who comes to Food Not Bombs for the free food has the opportunity to begin cooking the food with the group and empowering herself. After a short amount of time, she can become integral to the to the whole endeavor and other projects as well. This process is the exact opposite of the government or church-sponsored soup kitchens that immobilize hungry people, turning them into passive consumers taking handouts from staff who function as specialized producers. Food Not Bombs is only one of a number of counter-structural developments in our culture already. Info shops, free spaces, indie media, internet services, health and medic collectives, and food cooperatives. Although the current anarchist infrastructure is far from perfect, we are definitely in a need of a few good anarchist surgeons, it does exist outside of textbooks and wishful thinking. Unlike oppressive dinosaur infrastructure, anarchist counterstructure's real strength lies in its ability to inspire others to replicate and expand itself. There is no master cabal organizing the 300-plus food nut bombs or mad genius organizing the dozens of indie medias across the globe. We can all be the Johnny and Jane Appleseeds of anarchist counterstructure. We do this by harvesting good ideas and strategies from across the globe and replicating them on the local level. And while our passions and ideas should be brash, we should also be inspired by our day-to-day victories. People need to feel encouraged that sm- uh, starts to start small, realizing that infrastructure begets infrastructure. If your neighborhood has hungry people, do not fret over getting a nonprofit license from the state looking for a place to rent or deciding how a food pantry will be run. Start small. Get some friends together. Look for food you do not need or can easily replace and make a meal. Throw a party with free food for anyone that wants it by taking a bag of sandwiches to the park or the subway and passing them out. Maybe everyone around you is sick of the corporate news. Go into indie media or info shop and grab a news posting or item. Print copies and give them away during your lunch break to discuss it. If there's no place for a meeting, open your home, squat a table in the library, or meet in a park. 
Decentralized infrastructures can be every bit as effective, and perhaps more, than behemoth centralized infrastructures. There are numbers, numerous examples of decentralized infrastructures that have been, had huge impacts on hundreds of thousands of lives. Balinese irrigation is decentralized, but it provides water to thousands of farms and is a key component in the island's ability to feed itself. In Bolivia, simple community wells created by a handful of unskilled laborers in each neighborhood provide as much as 15% of the portable water, the potable water, needs for the country, entire country. They accomplish this with more regular service than the state-owned water company, and it's free. Community gardens and small-scale community-supported agriculture, CSAs, are finding new ways for inner cities and small farmers and gardeners to connect outside of the exploitive agribusiness industry. Dollar vans and gypsy cabs, which provide quick, quick, cheap rides for regular folks, are routinely more effective in providing transportation needs for underserved communities like Brooklyn and the Bronx than huge, bloated public municipal transportation systems. The beauty of small-scale infrastructure is that it is particip participatory. Not only does it provide a needed service, food, space, water, transportation, and so on, but it, but it is directly responsible to the community it serves and also allows people to learn skills from each other. It draws on the needs of the community and the already present local resources and skills. This is the underlying advantage of decentralized infrastructure. It brings together mutual aid and the do-it-yourself ethic in a way that empowers both the participants and the benefactors, blurring the line between producer and consumer. Instead of being a mere service, decentralized infrastructure actually empowers those it, it serves while being able to immediately respond to the changing needs of the community. Why should anarchists spend their limited resources and energy working on infrastructure when there are other projects that need to be done? Why create counterstructures when there, while there are protests to organize, art installations to be readied, bands to see, and manifestos to be written? What is the political value in cruising the streets in a beat-up van taking old ladies to the local CSA for a sack of turnips? Why open up a free babysitting service as the nation gears up for another insane war? What could be the possible political motive for opening and fixing up a squat for new families when over 35,000 folks are sleeping on our city streets? Who cares about a cruelly Xerox zine when most Americans get their news from television moguls? Aren't there better things we anarchists should be doing? In short, the answer is a resounding no. There are these more, quote, important things are impossible without a viable anarchist infrastructure. You can't stop a war, shut down an IMF meeting, or create a free and egalitarian society without an effective decentralized infrastructure. The good news is that this infrastructure allows you to be more effective in your struggles against the war, the state, and the entire capitalist system. To get people onto the streets, we have to ensure that there is also food, shelter, legal, communications, and medics on those streets. We are not only political beings, but flesh-and-blood animals that need food, water, a place to rest our heads, and health to engage in social and political work. Infrastructure is not only something that large bureaucracies can provide. For most of recorded history, 
humans have provided for the needs of their communities without his hierarchical and coercive institution. Society is complex, but this is mostly a result of the tendency of the authorities hoarding power and wealth. The more explicitly anarchist infrastructures we have, the more time, energy, and resources there are to wage a serious resistance. For these reasons, building this infrastructure is meaningful political and cultural work. There are many untapped skills, materials, and ideas in our communities if we are only willing to search them out.